globalization is, is a really age-old phenomena. Africa's always been part of that globalized world. I would make the argument that you couldn't possibly study global systems, any kind of global system, without centering Africa in, in that study. Three-fourths of the world's gold supply at 1500 is coming out of Africa. You see it on the Golden Guineas in England, that the gold they're using for those coins is coming out of Africa. It has a little elephant imprinted on the coin to show that it's African gold. This is What Teachers Need to Know, Africa Edition, the podcast that explores current events, history, and culture, as well as social issues of Africa. I'm Dan of Primary Source, a nonprofit that provides content and professional development for K-12 teachers in global learning. This podcast is just one of the many ways we help educators bring the world to their classrooms so all students get the knowledge and skills they need to be global citizens. To learn more about Primary Source and this podcast, visit www.primarysource.org slash podcasts. The creation of this podcast was made possible through support and collaboration with the African Studies Center at Boston University. To learn more about the center, visit www.bu.edu slash Africa. And to learn more about the center's teaching Africa outreach program, visit www.bu.edu slash Africa slash outreach, where you can learn more about resources, professional development, and ways you can deepen the study of Africa in your classroom. When Europeans like Henry Stanley described Africa as the Dark Continent, they set it and its inhabitants apart from the rest of the world. The term positioned Africa as existing outside of global networks of trade and exchange. It imbued the continent with the mystique of otherworldliness that was, in fact, a denial of millennia of interconnectedness. For thousands of years, Africa has contributed to and benefited from cultural, religious, economic, and scientific exchanges with the broader world. It is not detached from Europe, the Near East, Southwest Asia, or even China. But as we'll see, Africa has long been vital to the reciprocal relations that underpin global economies and cultural diffusion. Relations that extend far back and well beyond the modern era of European intervention in Africa through the slave trade and colonialism. By thinking less about continents and more about oceans and their role in human interaction, our conception of borders and space is fundamentally altered. We're going to think about Africa's role in the Indian Ocean world and, also, the Atlantic world as two expansive exchange networks that linked continents and engendered the flow of ideas, institutions, goods and products from one locale to another. These ocean worlds remind us that peoples are rarely remote or isolated. Instead, they are woven into complex systems facilitated by movement and migration by land and sea. For this episode, I spoke with Karina Ray, Associate Professor of African and African American Studies at Brandeis University. Karina teaches and writes extensively about the Black Atlantic world and maritime histories. I also spoke with Kristen Strobel, a social studies teacher in Lexington, Massachusetts, who teaches extensively about Africa. 
thinking a lot about thematic approaches that help students recognize the ways Africa has historically been integrated into global exchange. My name is Karina Ray. I am an associate professor of African and African-American studies at Brandeis University. I'm Kristen Hayward-Strobel. I work at Lexington High School in Lexington, Massachusetts. I teach world history, and I've taught there since 2005. Let's listen to Karina as she discusses the tendency for Africa to be understood primarily in the context of the Atlantic Ocean and the transatlantic slave trade, and what this means for our perceptions of Africa here in the United States when this particular example of African connectedness becomes the primary reference point for understanding Africa's role in world history. Especially in the United States, because we are obviously part of the Atlantic world. But if we're thinking about the long stretch of history, then we can understand that, in fact, before Africa was sort of deeply pulled into the Atlantic world via the transatlantic slave trade, you could turn to the Mediterranean world, you could turn to East Africa and look at the ways in which already in the first century along the East African coast, you have places that are being pulled into the Indian Ocean world and over time the development of all of the famed Swahili city-states. Let's take a moment to define the Indian Ocean world. We can understand it as a long-distance system of commercial networks connecting the peoples of Africa's interior, east coast, and islands to the Near East, the Indian subcontinent, Indonesia, and East Asia via the Indian Ocean. Monsoon rains contributed to agricultural production, and the biannual change of monsoon winds and currents lent itself to innovations in trans-oceanic seafaring. Within this world, land-based production of agriculture and goods combined with maritime trade to facilitate not only the movement of commodities, but also of science, technology, religion, and philosophy. Plants and animals were imported and exported across vast expanses of Africa and Asia, and cultures responded to the migration of people and, with them, the diffusion of ideas and forms of expression. All of this preceded the rise of the Atlantic world and Europe's dominance there by 1,500 years. However, the transatlantic slave trade and the forced movement of people from Africa to the Americas can dominate our collective memory and vision of Africa in the United States. Let's hear from Karina why this is problematic. Oftentimes what I find is that the understanding or engagement with the continent stops at that point as if all it was was a source of enslaved people that would then populate the quote-unquote new world. The maritime trade found in the Indian Ocean world is a prime example of human-environment interaction. What environmental factors enabled the advent of this global economy, linking Africa to Arabia, India, and China? In the context of the Indian Ocean world, you know, one of the interesting factors there is the monsoon winds as a result of the fact that they basically blew to the west and south and then to the north and east on a very predictable cycle, 
meant that traders were coming in from Arabia, from India, and then all the way down the coast and then returning, but because they would end up staying for a considerable amount of time before the winds would shift back, they were able to sort of develop a stronger foothold in those areas, oftentimes having families, growing businesses, and certainly consolidating their ties. The Indian Ocean trade networks experience multiple periods of expansion, brought on by environmental conditions and technological development. As early as 300 BCE, Africa was exporting high-value luxury as well as bulk items. Nubian gold went to the Near East, papyrus to the Mediterranean and Southwest Asia. Wheat and barley also made its way to the Near East. From Egypt, ivory, leopard skins, ostrich feathers, precious stones, and weapons were exported. Aksum, in present-day Eritrea and part of Ethiopia, until the 6th century CE, controlled caravan routes to the Red Sea and established commercial contact with Somalia, Egypt, the Near East, and India, exporting hippopotamus hide, rhinoceros horn, musk, incense, emeralds, and turtle shells. Aksum was also an importer of wine from Italy, Turkey, and Egypt, Egyptian olive oil, cloth from India, as well as Indian iron and steel. By the 11th century CE, the Swahili civilization in East Africa was established, meaning coastal dweller or people of the coast. From the Arabic word Sahil for coast, Swahili people spoke Kiswahili, a language and culture predominantly of Bantu African origin. Let's hear from Kristen and listen to a bit about the way she approaches the study of the Indian Ocean world, particularly the Swahili coast. And the Swahili, obviously, that's a huge emphasis. Swahili coast has the connections with the Indian Ocean trade that are long-standing because of the monsoons. So this is a great connection with science classes because they learn about the monsoons in earth science. I get to build on that in my history class. And we look at, at the technology they devised to be able to use the monsoons and how that technology itself, once the Europeans got a hold of it, became really important, allowing them to cross the Atlantic. The Swahili coast was not just a site of commercial transactions. It also epitomizes the cultural cross-pollinations of the Indian Ocean world. What sort of contact and influence brought about these dynamics in society and identity formation? Of course, you could also point to Islam along the Swahili coast and in the Mediterranean world, obviously even down into West Africa as another point of, of hybridity and looking at the different ways that Islam has been adopted, adapted, and practiced in all of these kinds of different contact zones. By the dawn of the Swahili civilization, Islam had expanded beyond the Arabian Peninsula, where it emerged in the 7th century. Its movement throughout the Indian Ocean world introduced efficient administrative and legal systems and provided security and stability for merchants because of the shared religious and commercial networks offered by the expansion of the religion. As Muslim settlers took root on the Swahili coast, elites began converting to the faith. The annual pilgrimage to Mecca, the Hajj, further facilitated trade across the Red Sea. Yet this has raised questions for historians for a long time and resulted in competing interpretations about the Swahili. Just who was responsible for the ingenuity and civilizational advancement on the East African coast? One of the big debates for a very long time was, are the Swahili African or are they Arab? A lot of the early scholarship that came out of the colonial period attributed 
Swahili accomplishments, the development of its trade system, the beautiful architecture and material culture that is evident on the Swahili coast to a kind of foreign element, because there's this notion that Africans wouldn't have been capable. But as an African, it's the thing that I am always keen to emphasize with my students is really remembering that the that the Swahili, you know, as we think of them as literally as a coastal society, right? But they are birthed through the encounter between these elements that come in from the Indian Ocean, as well as the elements that come in from the interior of the African continent. Those two things come together to form the Swahili, and you can't actually understand who the Swahili are or any of their economic systems and even many of their aesthetics without acknowledging the influential role that Africans played. Karina's argument that the Swahili civilization was birthed through encounter and hybridization is a reminder that the Swahili have Bantu African origins. Let's hear from Kristen and learn a bit about how she brings this message into her classroom when working with high school students. And again, that's another great case study for how the environment influences the culture, because, of course, you see the Swahili are an African culture. They speak a Bantu-based language. They, it's a, it's a, you know, the grammar is all African. But there are a lot of interactions between the Arab traders who come and the Indian traders who come. And so you see this very interesting culture develop along the coast of East Africa that really connects all of these um, different cultures. The kids are really amazed by how sophisticated the housing is, right? It's made out of this coral stone. Coral stone is cool in the summer. You know, it keeps you warm in the winter. They're building their homes out of coral stone because they're in an area where that's the building material they have. And it looks like cement block. It's a beautiful building material. And they have these gorgeous homes that look like they could have been built in the 1900s and they're being built in the 1200s and at a time when the Europeans are still um, throwing chamber pots out the window. Karina mentioned the relationship between the Swahili and the interior. Africa's role in the Indian Ocean world was not limited to coastal connections between ports and commercial hubs. It's true that maritime trade facilitated Swahili shipbuilding and that this was put into the service of exporting ivory, gold, and sandalwood and importing beads from the Middle East, perfumes, wine, and kitchenware from Iran, rice, spices, and copper from India, and porcelain from China. But Africans' Indian Ocean connection faced inwards as well. Even if you think about the importance of gold, gold was coming from Great Zimbabwe in the interior and was coming in, you know, to the ports. Maritime trade strengthened linkages between the coast and the interior and Great Zimbabwe epitomizes these successful relations. Lasting from 1050 to 1500 CE, Great Zimbabwe established mining and metal-working economic sectors. It also engaged in inter-regional exchanges of salt and metal for grain, cattle, and more. Linking the interior to the coast, it's a reminder of the manifold flourishing African communities brought on by the interplay between importing and exporting within growing global networks. Looking at a present-day map, Indian Ocean Africa spanned from Egypt in the north to South Africa in the south and included what's now Sudan, Eritrea, Djibouti, Ethiopia, Somalia, Kenya, Tanzania, Mozambique, and Madagascar. The interior that was part of the sophisticated trade network included present-day South Sudan, Uganda, Rwanda, 
Burundi, Malawi, Zimbabwe, Eswatini, parts of Botswana, Zambia, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. All of this developed without the influence of European societies. However, Indian Ocean Africa would not remain untouched by European intervention. Let's hear from Kristen as she describes European encroachment, particularly by the Portuguese, and how she introduces this to her students. Another example that I often talk about is Vasco da Gama's trip around the Cape of Good Hope. That's an amazing story in and of itself from the Portuguese perspective, because of course he's he loses a bunch of ships, but he makes it back because he gets one ship full of, of nutmeg, right? And it still pays for the entire voyage. But Vasco da Gama also sees these really sophisticated African cities in the east coast of Africa, and he tells folks back home all about it, and they very quickly afterwards send Portuguese men of war and attack these Swahili city-states, which were not built as fortresses. They were built to encourage open trading with other places, right? That's how the Swahili city-states had traditionally competed with each other, is to try to get more traders in their ports. This was an open trading system in the Indian Ocean Trade Network. And so this is a huge blow to the Swahili. The Portuguese did not have many interesting things to trade. They didn't have gold, except for what they could get from West Africa. Their tapestries weren't as sophisticated as Indian tapestries. They didn't have things that the Indian Ocean Trade Network wanted. What they did have was some of the best weapons in the world. They put those weapons on boats. They had these cannons on the side of their boat that the Indian Ocean Trade Network wasn't ready for. It hadn't been part of their culture. And so they were able to really get a foothold and enough to change the culture of the Indian Ocean Trade Network. So again, African, you know, Indian Ocean connections connecting in a very like fundamental way to the Western European history and the story of the Atlantic. When studying East Africa, Kristen brings material culture into her classroom. Thinking about Indian Ocean trade, objects and goods are part of this story of global interconnectedness. Let's learn how Kristen helps students interact with stories, values, and community through material culture. Finding a couple of primary sources, you can sort of develop everything else around that. Find a source that speaks to you. So the conga is a really interesting tool to kind of examine particularly women's history, and I introduce it as part of a textile culture, like little places in the world develop textiles that really help to show their identity. And a lot of times women are very intrinsically connected to those textile cultures. And in a place where we often don't hear women's voices, textile culture can be a way to kind of get into the lives of women. With this case of the conga, it's a more modern connection with ancient roots. It's usually sold as two large squares of fabric. And the two large squares of fabric can be cut and they match. They always have a border. They always have a message, some sort of proverb or saying at the bottom of them. And they're always symmetrical. And most congas, at least the older ones, will have a curry on it, like a green mango, of what we would call a paisley design. And they have these really interesting ancient and modern connections with the Indian Ocean world because the border of the conga was inspired by the Portuguese headscarves that the Portuguese women wore. So at the beginning of the conga, they used to sew them up. And then 
Indian merchants realized that they could have a, they saw a market and they made a textile for the African Swahili women with a border around it. And then they added some very savvy businessman and um, added this message at the bottom where you could add a proverb. These congas became very, very influential in modern Swahili life. There are things on the congas which can mean many things, but you might have a message in the family where a woman might wear a message that says, a mother's love is better than gold, which might be a way of telling her mother how much she appreciates her. It might also be a way of telling her mother-in-law, who lives in the same house with her, that maybe she should be nicer to her, or that her own mother is much nicer to her. So there's a variety of different ways that these messages can be used. Studying Africa in the context of the Indian Ocean world reveals how fully societies from the African interior and East African coast, from Cairo to the Cape, were integrated into global systems of exchange. Over thousands of years, manifold communities contributed to and benefited from these reciprocal systems built upon human-environment interaction and the development of sophisticated maritime technologies and economic structures. But when we think about Africa in the Atlantic world, a very different power dynamic tends to come to mind. In this context, the centuries-long forced removal of people from the African continent is central to the story. None other than W.E.B. Du Bois said this about the transatlantic slave trade. Quote, The most magnificent drama in the last thousand years of human history is the transportation of 10 million human beings out of the dark beauty of their mother continent into the newfound El Dorado of the West. Describing Africa in the Indian Ocean world, we can use words like exchange, development, fusion, and hybridity to describe the millennia of processes that unfolded across oceans and continents. Yet historian Kwasi Kunadu has built a different lexicon around transatlantic Africa. Capture, rupture, displacement, dehumanization, homogenization, estrangement, Prisoners all populate the stories and structures of enslavement. Yet there is still African agency and voice to be found here. Karina and Kristen share more about Africa in the Atlantic world and the ways they teach to reclaim and recenter African experiences. Once you can break down a historical, enormous historical process that went on for 300 years, it's incredibly overwhelming. The slave trade is an overwhelming thing to even think about, and yet it, it informs everything about the world that we live in. We have to remember that throughout this long period um, during the transatlantic slave trade and, and thereafter, it remains very much a part of this world that is in formation and is in constant contact where people are moving back and forth. Part of the story, obviously, is trying to also understand what happens to the African continent as a result of its integration into this Atlantic world. Part of this integration into the Atlantic world is the generally understood power imbalance between Europeans and Africans within the evolving slave trade. And it did evolve over centuries. Beginning in the 13th century with merchants from Genoa and Venice 
who established slaving ports where Eastern European Slavs were put to work in sugar production. The Iberian nations of Spain and Portugal would extend this system of plantation slavery, bringing its principles to Africa and the Atlantic. They would dominate the transatlantic slave system through the 17th century, followed by Dutch, Danish, Swedish, French, Brandenburger, and English traders as well. Let's listen to Karina describe the way power dynamics were in flux initially in this process. When we think about the dynamics of power, they're not so easily mapped onto a divide along race lines. Africans have a lot more power and control along the coast than I think is generally accepted. In the early days of trade, you have a situation in which Europeans were completely dependent on their African hosts uh, for for land, for food, for medicine, for all kinds of things. Something that's interesting to realize is that in that much earlier period of time, dating back to the late 15th century with the arrival of the Portuguese, the power dynamics between Africans and Europeans is not so clear-cut as it would become during the period of colonialism, but as the slave trade is abolished and we move towards the period of formal colonialism, that balance of power begins to tip in favor of Europeans who are no longer needing to ask for rights to uh, occupy certain lands or for things. They're, they're just, they're demanding it. We move from um, a kind of situation in which relationships are much more reciprocal to them being sort of dictated. Kristen also emphasizes how Africans did not always assume Europeans had the upper hand in early episodes of Encounter. Additionally, Kristen reminds us that Africans did not constitute a unified, homogenous community when the Portuguese arrived. In fact, the relations that were established with the Portuguese, in part, reflect the internal African rivalries that predated the advent of the transatlantic slave trade. In the Congo, one of the communities in the Congo that had made early contact with the Portuguese and accepted the missionaries into their community, in part because their neighbors who were their enemies did not, they accepted them in early and the king of the Congolese had his son trained in Christianity and he, the son, grew up and became King Alfonso of the Congo. And he saw himself as a natural equal to the king of Portugal. And you'll see this in his letters. He's writing as a natural equal. But throughout the course of his reign, the Portuguese have established a stronger and stronger position in West Africa. And they are starting to take more and more slaves. And they're not just taking King Alfonso's prisoners of war any longer. They're starting to take even some of his own nobility. This is the same sort of dynamic that you see in Africa, right? So King Alfonso is saying, hey, wait, how can you not see that this noble of mine is not a prisoner of war? But of course, the Portuguese saw only African. That's a tough series of letters to read. He thinks he's playing on an even playing field, and he's not. He expands his empire using Portuguese guns for a while, and then it starts to kind of collapse underneath him. And so that's a series of letters where you really see the downsides of what's happening. Let's pause and read from one of these letters. Having received the Portuguese in the late 15th century, King Alfonso promoted Christianity and Europeanization, but would write of the Portuguese that they, quote, seize many of our people, free and exempt men, 
And very often it happens that they kidnap noblemen and the sons of noblemen and our relatives and take them to be sold to white men who are in our kingdoms. Kristen brings these letters authored by Alfonso of the Kingdom of Congo into her classroom. She does not stop there. She also brings in the narratives of enslaved Africans who were captured and transported across the Atlantic. We read parts of Alaudo Equiano's narrative of his experience as an enslaved African who has been ripped out of his home and sent across the Atlantic Ocean on a slave ship. And his portrayal of this is is pretty difficult for students because it's in a personal account, one person telling their life story. So that's a, a good way to sort of enter it. What did Equiano have to say? His narrative recounts so much about his abduction and voyage. His words return us to an individual experience and break us out of a macro-level understanding of the forced movement of Africa's from West Africa, West Central Africa, and Southeast Africa to North and South America and the Caribbean. In his narrative, Equiano explains, quote, I was carried on board. I was immediately handled and tossed up to see if I was sound by some of the crew, and I was now persuaded that I had gotten into a world of bad spirits. I now saw myself deprived of all chance of returning to my native country. These words are not easily processed. Equiano is recounting an almost unfathomable hardship. So how can the story of exile and enslavement be brought into classrooms? What does Kristen do to facilitate her students' confrontation with the brutality of transatlantic slavery in ways that are sensitive and responsive to students? One of the ways that we've tried to tackle in the classroom is to do a silent discussion, to have the kids read maybe chunks of the narrative that they hadn't previously read and respond or respond to questions. There are a variety of different big pieces of paper up around the room, and then we have a silent discussion where they can write what they think and then respond to others. And then at the end of that, we can debrief out loud, but it gives people a chance to think through some of this stuff in a way that gives them some space to think. If you can get them to see from the perspective of one human, it makes it real. Because in some ways, it's easy to dismiss the big overwhelming numbers, but it's much harder to dismiss that emotional response that a kid is telling you about. I mean, he's a young man as he's going through this, and he's telling you about the details of this trip. And that's a harder thing to emotionally dismiss. And it helps them also to give them something to sort of hinge everything else on. Teaching the story of the transatlantic slave trade entails asking students to confront a profound level of dehumanization that was institutionalized and sustained for centuries. But we can zoom in and out across time and space to illuminate for students the history that came before the slave trade. Without ignoring or minimizing this history, we can be deliberate in calling attention to the meaningful and lasting contributions made by many African societies spanning millennia. As Karina and Kristen revealed, Africa has long been a part of global systems of trade and exchange. It was a vital part of the Indian Ocean world, as is evidenced by the diffusion of material culture, religion, ideas, and technology. Henry Stanley may have referred to Africa as the dark continent in the 19th century, implying that it was a place defined by mystery, cut off from the rest of the world. 
But taking the time to study Aksum or the Swahili coast or Great Zimbabwe reveals otherwise. In an interconnected world, Africa is fundamentally woven into the fabric. That's it for this episode of What Teachers Need to Know, Africa Edition. Thanks again to Karina Ray and Kristen Strobel, and please join us next time.